Amen. Amen. Our indescribable God, our beautiful, wonderful, indescribable God. I love to worship God. I don't know about you, but it is fun. Even on a cold Sunday morning, it is great to have a God that we can worship, that we can come, who loves us so much that he called us by name. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the king of the universe, the one who created the stars and the sky and everything that we see in it and beyond anything we can actually see. We can never see the end of the universe because the universe is actually still expanding. That's something scientists have found out recently in the last several years is that the universe is actually still expanding. So that means that no matter how big a telescope we make, we're never, ever going to see the end of the universe, which means God, in his eternal state that he is, we, he has no beginning and no end. We will never know everything there is to know about him. And that's exciting because when we get to heaven, you know, you hear people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to know everything. No, you won't. And why would you want to? I mean, eternity is a really long time. And if you live in eternity and you know everything from the moment you get there, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, there's a lot to do. I know some people think they're going to play golf or fish or do that. And there's probably going to be those things I would like to believe. But the main thing is we're going to be worshiping and we're getting to know our God. And it's wonderful when we can understand that he is beyond anything that we can fathom in our minds. I think that's exciting. It scares me, but it's exciting because he loves me so much I can still sit in his lap and call him Abba Father, even though he is so big and so ferocious and so amazing. I'm going to give myself crying here in a minute. If you don't know me, when I start talking about God, I get a little emotional. So if you're new here, just you're going to have to learn to live with me a little bit. <clears throat> All right, our passage this morning is a really long one. And so it's, uh, we're going to start, well, we're going to be going through Stephen. Last week we, we looked in Acts chapter 6, and we looked at verses 8 through 15, and we did an overview of Stephen and who he is in the book of Acts. And we pointed out that through Scripture we know that he was not an apostle. He was actually uh, just like us. And uh, he was called to be a deacon, one of the first seven deacons, that Stephen himself had had this tremendous life change by God. He, he had a face of an angel, which we learned is a sign of someone whose life has been transformed by the Lord. And he had placed his faith in Christ, and he was completely a new person. And he was on fire for Jesus, and he was not afraid to speak about Jesus to whoever it is and however many times that it came to him. The opportunity came to him. Stephen spoke of Jesus, and he did it without fear. But he also did it with love. And he did it in the way Jesus did. Because he was a man who was completely transformed. A face of an angel. He was full of grace and power. A power that wasn't based on physical strength, but a power that could only come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of him. Again, he was the first person outside of the apostles who was, who was performing great signs and wonders in the name of the Lord. There were people from a synagogue 
or possibly several synagogues in the area, but in the word it, it, it talks about it in a singular, so I believe it's a singular synagogue who were coming against him. They didn't like what he was saying, but they couldn't stop him because of the power of the spirit that was within him was stronger than their opposition. Stephen was proclaiming Christ every chance he got. And the only way the opposition could gain any footing against him was by raising up false witnesses to speak against him, proclaiming that he was blaspheming God. And this sounded just like what Jesus went through in the mock trial that he faced. The people who came against him when they raised up false witnesses against him, saying that he said that he would tear the temple down and raise it again in three days, not understanding that Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, but he was talking about himself. That he would one day die, but he would be raised again three days later. But now, now as we see, as we're going to start here, this is Stephen's turn to answer. Now, we know that when, when Jesus came before Pilate, and Pilate asked him a lot of the similar questions that Stephen was answering, Jesus was silent. He didn't need to talk to them. He didn't need to answer. His, his works were enough. His word was enough. But Stephen, on the other hand, Stephen has a bold proclamation against them. Now, I had asked you, if you received my email, if you're new here today and this is your first time, obviously you didn't know this, but um, to read ahead, to read uh, verses 1 through, um, let's see, where did I have you read until? I think it was like 43, right? Through 43. And to, and to look and see what was going on in this passage, because honestly, we just don't have enough time to hit it all from chapter uh, 7, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. And there's a section I really want to hit on. But I want us to go through this, this oratory of what Stephen answered back, and I want to do it just kind of in an overview. And if you haven't had a chance to read through all of it, then that's your homework for this week, is to go back and and look through it all, and see what Stephen was trying to say. But I believe in verses 7, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 43, Stephen is explaining three things about the Lord mainly. And the first one is, is that throughout all, of, throughout all of Israel's history, God was present. God was present. And the second one is that God in his sovereignty, he was the one who chose the path and direction of Israel. And three is that God was faithful even when Israel wasn't faithful. We see right away in verse 2 that Stephen says the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And then the Lord made the promise to Abraham that the land that, that he had directed Abraham to leave his home for and to go to, that he would show him when he got there, was the promised land that the nation of Israel would have. Now, he did not give Abraham any of that land when he got there. There was still going to be many years, including 400 years of slavery, that they were going to have to go through before they were going to travel to the land that he had promised Abraham. But God was present, and God was directing. Those are what I want you to get out of that. And then in verse 9, 
when he was talking about Joseph, he said that God was with him. Now, Joseph, Stephen points out, is one, is a leader whom God chose. He raised him up. He raised him up so that he could bring Israel to Egypt and go through the 400 years of slavery so they could head to the promised land. There was a purpose behind all the things that God did. Nothing that happened went without a purpose that God was in charge of, and he was present. But as we see, these were the patriarchs. I remember that Jacob, his 12 sons, in case you didn't know this, his 12 sons were actually the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name was changed to Israel just to give you an Old Testament lesson really quickly. And so they are the patriarchs of Israel. And Joseph was the one who went ahead of them to Egypt. And they rejected Joseph, their brother, and tried to actually kill him. And this is a pattern of Israel, that they see God's leading and they see God choosing a leader and rejecting him. And this is what Stephen is trying to point out. In verse 20, Stephen said that when Moses was born, he was beautiful in his sight. And then in verse 30, Stephen recounts God's presence in the burning bush when he called Moses back to Egypt to be God's instrument of the deliverance of Israel out of slavery. I know I'm going through this really fast, but I have to. So again, if you're having a hard time following along, it's okay. Um, just know that Stephen is under fire, filled with the Spirit, and he's spewing all of this out, and he's getting it out faster than I'm getting it out. And Luke is taking this, and he's trying to put it all together so that we understand it. So I, if, if it's too fast and you think I'm not bringing out enough of it, I just ask you to go back and read it later. But then in verse 33, Stephen recounts God's command for Moses. Remember, he said, when he came to the burning bush, he told Moses to take off his sandals because the ground that he was standing on was holy. And Stephen brings this up, and the reason why Stephen brings this up is because he's reminding these leaders, the Sanhedrin, that wherever God is, the land is holy. Now, for us, think about that. Because the Holy Spirit indwells each of us as believers. So what does that say about us? What does that say about how we are called to live? I mean, if God is indwelling us, are we not holy? Are we not called to be holy? Do we live holy lives? The point of Stephen's outcry here, this oratory, is that he wanted to remind the leaders, the Sanhedrin, that God has always been with them. That God has always been faithful to them, even in bad circumstances. God directed their path to fulfill the promise that he gave them through Abraham, Moses, and the prophets. That God is a constant presence and a faithful promise keeper. And the leaders, the forefathers, they all missed it. They all missed it. They were unfaithful, and they were always trying to make God fit in a box that allowed them to understand who he is. They tried to put the Lord in a place where they could always find him in their understanding. 
They made the law of God into a works-based theology that they couldn't keep. They strayed from the worship of God and began worshiping idols and foreign gods. And even through all of this, the Lord remained faithful and he never left them and his grace never ended. He kept his promise to them and now the land that, that the Sanhedrin are accusing Stephen on is the land that God had promised to them long ago. God kept his promise. And it was through Moses that God prophesied that another prophet like him would come from among the people of Israel. And of course, we know that prophet to be Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. But Israel disobeyed Moses too, and thus the Lord, and, and also the Lord, by turning to the golden calf. But even after that, the Lord stayed among his people. He stayed among them in the tabernacle, remember? The Lord had directed Moses and his crew to build the tabernacle to his specifications so that the Lord would be with the nation of Israel as they went through the wilderness, as they traveled to the land that God had promised to them. God always wanted to be among his people. He dwelled with his stiff-necked people. The Lord's faithfulness is never-ending. And then he gets into circumcision, the law, which were God's covenant to Israel to make them his people. They were to be holy as God is holy. They were to worship Yahweh only and follow his covenant law and be dedicated to him. But circumcision was not meant to just be a physical act and be done with. And just as the law was not supposed to be a set of rules to follow and be done with it, circumcision was also to include a transformation of the heart, a transformation of their lives. The law, as Jesus constantly points out, it was, a, it was about a heart change, a heart change, a change in how we think of things and how we, we came to fulfill it, a, a showing us that we don't live like the pagans that are around us. We live according to how God lives, who is a holy and just and righteous God. We see this as Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But Stephen points out that their forefathers couldn't follow the law, and they missed the spirit of God in his law, and they strayed and worshiped idols. But then Stephen began to talk about the tabernacle and the temple and the places where Israel believed God lived. These were the places they believed they could find God's presence. But the tabernacle remained in place until the time of King David. Now, I told you there was a lot in here. We're almost done with this section. But David wanted to build a house for God, which, of course, we knew as the temple, Right? Yet it wasn't David who built the temple, it was Solomon. So now this is where we're going to pick up the story. I knew that was a lot. It's the longest intro I think I've ever had in a message, but we kind of had to hit that. But we're going to pick this up now as we look at chapter 7, verses 44 through chapter 8, verse 3. So let's read that together. Starting at verse 44. Stephen says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses 
directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it wasn't until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High, and this is where we really get started, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then Stephen says this to them. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, and even the, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, as we now pick up the story of Stephen here, Lord, and we start to go through this and dig through these verses, Lord, and what it is that Stephen had to say, Lord, as well as what his stoning means to us today. Lord, I just pray, God, that you open our hearts and our minds to hear what it is that you have to say through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me, Lord. And we just praise you and thank you, and to your glory we say this in Jesus' name, amen. So we start here in verse 44, and we see right away that, that again, we talk about that uh, the tent of witness, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is, you may have heard this or you may have not heard this, but this is a place where God's kind of glory would be visible to Israel. Now, the word Shekinah means that this is God's divine presence. It was where God would come down in a cloud of his glory to meet with Moses. It was God who gave the instructions on how the tabernacle that Moses built for him and to travel with him throughout their journey in the wilderness was to be built. But after Israel possessed the promised land, when Joshua led them over the Jordan, it was God's promise to Abraham that he was fulfilling 
but he still had the tabernacle. He was still with his people. And this continued until, as we just read, until King David's time, where King David, who had found favor with the Lord, wanted to build God a house. Can you imagine wanting to build God a house? I mean, I get it. It's a nice gesture, right? But it wasn't David who built the temple. It was actually Solomon. And, it's, and then Stephen points out in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, when he says this, he says, starting in verse 48, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And then here's what he is quoting from Isaiah. The Lord says, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Isn't it ironic that we, the creation, want to build the creator a place where he could dwell? I mean, that is, that is really a remarkable thought when you think about it. But what the Lord is saying here through Isaiah that Stephen is uh, bringing out, he's, this is an astonishingly, astonishingly, my lips are still cold, astonishingly wonderful and knee-knocking statement. God does not live in houses made by people. Heaven is God's throne. This is why I love God so much, is because of how humongous he is. And this follows Stephen's theme that God was and is always present with his people. Wherever God's people are, there is God. God is here this morning with us. You may not see him, but I pray that you feel him, but in your mind know he is here. Because if one believer walked in the door carrying the Holy Spirit inside of him, God is present. God is is here right now with us. Praise God for that. I get goosebumps thinking that I am getting to preach his word in his very presence. No pressure at all. But it's awesome to think that the power of his spirit allows me to do it in a way that brings him glory. The Lord is too big. He's too mighty. He's too powerful. He's too marvelous. He's too loving. He's too holy. He's too glorious. He's too beautiful. He's too wonderful to put in a house. And yet, the temple was a wonderful thing. And Stephen is not pointing out that the temple or the tabernacle are bad things. He is just saying that God's presence is bigger than what the Sanhedrin is even thinking. We even today, we try to put God in a box. We try to fit him sometimes in a place where we can understand like, okay, God, you're, you're right here. And I know, don't move, okay? Because when I need you, I'm going to come right here and I'm going to get you. 
But that's not God. That's not God. God is ferocious, man. He is the creator. He said, did I not create all these things? He is the creator of the universe. We are his idea. He is not our idea. Now, foreign gods and idols that we come up with to worship instead, those are our idea. But do they have any power at all? Do they speak? Do they give us the Holy Spirit? Can they possibly indwell us? Can they keep us from fear? Can they protect us from our enemies? No. Only the God of creation can do that. Only our holy and righteous God. And Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin that their God is way too small. And we too must stop making our God so small. We must understand it. I am including myself in this. I always include myself in all of these things because you guys only have to listen to me for 40 minutes or so. But I am in this thing for an entire week and God speaks to me the entire time. And so he is telling me, Scott, you're, you think of me way too small. When I get worried or nervous about things, like even how many people are going to come to church on a cold morning on a Sunday. And I have to admit, you know, he blew me away again. And uh, my God is too small. And so is the Sanhedrin's God. We worship a God who came down from heaven and was made incarnate in a virgin's womb. This God who is so big that he's uncontainable came down from heaven into Mary's womb to be born as a baby, to die on a cross, to take the sins of all mankind upon himself, and then to be powerfully raised again three days later after he died from crucifixion, who's now ascended in heaven at the right hand of the Father. It's finished. He finished it. He did the work. This is our God. This is our God, and the God of the Sanhedrin was too small. Our memory verse for January is Psalm 46, verses 1 through 2, or 2a, if you will. The God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. This is a God that we must remember, this giant, ferocious, loving, kind, Abba, Father of ours, is a God who is our help in trouble. And we do not need to fear. If God is for us, who could be against us? That should be another memory verse that we have. Now Stephen is going to turn the tables on them. <clears throat> he is going to accuse them of they're the blasphemers, not him. Let's look at verses 51 through 53 together. Stephen says, after that long oratory that we just went through, he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. 
Stephen immediately accuses the Sanhedrin of not being the faithful ones. He calls them stiff-necked people, and if you know the Old Testament at all, you know that God called the nation of Israel stiff-necked many times because they would never seem to get it. God would tell them, look, if you follow me and you do this and you follow my law and you follow it to the hilt, I will protect you and keep you. But if you don't, then my presence is not going to always be with you and you're going to face so much trouble. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Each time they turned away from the Lord and went to foreign gods because because they could create the foreign gods. They could make the gods of stone and, 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 and wood. And they could look at them and they could see them and they could see the beginning and the end of them. The God was too big for them. They didn't know what to do. And they missed what the heart change of circumcision was to be about. What it meant to be a Jew. Now, ironically, Paul, who is in this... Uh, in this whole passage here, known as Saul, later, because as we're going to see coming up here in a few weeks, he writes this in Romans chapter 2 in verses 25 and then in 28 through 29. And he speaks of what Stephen is speaking. He says in verse 25, he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, it doesn't do any good if you just get circumcised and then go off and do your own thing. It's kind of like for us as, as Christians, if we were just to say, okay, and we give, the vo we give what we know as the sinner's prayer, right? And we ask Jesus into our life, and then we just go off and do whatever we want. We miss the point of what it means to give your life to Jesus and be transformed. To have your heart circumcised. To be one of God's children. A sinner's prayer doesn't save a single person. It's just words. Just like circumcision did not make them Jews. Now, you might go, okay, wait a minute. I don't know if I follow you. All right? Well, this is what Paul says in verse 28 and 29. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you see? Circumcision and also the law as God had given it was not just rituals that we do. They're not just things that we do in order to gain God's favor. There was more to it than that. If you call yourself a Christian, look at Stephen as an example. He had the face of an angel. He was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was living his life for Christ. He didn't just say the sinner's prayer and go off and go his way. Stephen is an example of what it means to be a Christ-following disciple of Jesus. And he's one that you and I need to be following. And this is what he is pointing, this is what Stephen is pointing out to the Sanhedrin. 
And now the Sanhedrin themselves, the righteous one has come, right? Jesus has come. We know this because in the book of Acts at the beginning, Jesus has been ascended. He gave the Holy Spirit and it came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And here we go, right? But they have rejected him, the righteous one. They have missed the point completely, just as their forefathers did. Just as the forefathers did. So the question for us is, do we miss Jesus the same way? Do we miss him? Do we miss it? The point of who Jesus is. If we reject his Bible and think Jesus is just a good man, a great leader, a great teacher, and we don't recognize him as Lord and Savior, then we miss him. We miss him. Don't be caught missing who Jesus is. Now, the reaction of the Sanhedrin, it was instant. And there was a debate among scholars whether the stoning of Stephen came down as a verdict from this mock trial that he's going through, or if this is a reaction out of rage. I think we can see that when we read this together, so let's read it again. Starting in verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, again, being described as full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So we see that the Sanhedrin, they were angry. They were furious. They were gnashing their teeth. Have you ever been so angry that you gnashed your teeth or ground your teeth at someone? I know I've made my dad that mad before. I remember he had dentures, and I'll tell you this quick funny story. But one time, I don't know if you remember what I did, but um, we had a tri-level house, and I did something. And I had a, I had a big mouth, and so I usually it had something to do with what I said to him. Well, he was furious with me, and he was gnashing his teeth, but he had dentures. And so he backed me. I mean, literally, my dad, I started in my room, which was in the basement, and we went up the stairs, and we went through the, we went through the family room, and then we went up the stairs to the kitchen, and then we went up another stair, set of stairs into my brother's bedroom, into the closet, and all the time, my dad was like this far away from me, and he is in my face gnashing his teeth, and he is really, really angry with me. And then we get into the closet, and finally it happens. He spits his dentures out at me, and I couldn't help but laugh, which was a big mistake. I learned very quickly that that was a big mistake. But what are you going to do? My dad spit his dentures out at me. But this is what they're doing. They're very, very angry. They're very angry. They did not see Stephen's rebuke with humility. They received it in rage. And then when we look at verse 56, verse 56 is really intriguing. Because with all this happening around Stephen, Stephen had a vision of heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now when Christ ascended into heaven, we know that he sat at the right hand of his Father because his work was finished. As the great high priest in the final sacrifice, when he sat down, there was no more sacrifices. His work was done, and so he sat down. So why is Jesus standing in Stephen's vision? 
Did you ever think of that when you've read through this before? Why is Jesus standing up? It's because Jesus is pleading his case before the Father. Jesus is also our advocate. He is still at work. His, he is not done. This should be an, a great encouragement to us that as Stephen is here at the end of his life, he's about ready to be brutalized, and he sees heaven open, and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, pleading his case. And that is what Christ does for all believers. Does that not just bring the hair up on your neck? Now, I still have hair on my neck, and I can feel it. I mean, it is awesome. God, Jesus, standing before his Father, pleading my case. I know what I'm like. And yet, there he is still doing that. And then we hear of the, the Sanhedrin. They're covering their ears they're like little kids. No, they're yelling at the top of their voices, and they rush at him. And they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. These verses tell me that this was not, you know, a verdict that was handed down. It was a rage-filled reaction to Stephen's testimony and his rebuke. They were angry and they wanted Stephen killed, so they all rushed him. This doesn't sound like a well-thought-out verdict by a bunch of educated religious leaders, does it? No, they were angry. They were a mob attacking a single man with an intent to kill. And Saul, even though he didn't participate, he was a key figure as they laid their coats at his feet. Again, this Saul is Paul. He's also known as Paul. He wrote many books in the Old, in the, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. He knew the Old Testament very well. He was a Pharisee. And we'll look at him later as we get to Acts chapter 9 and the rest of the book of Acts. But look at Stephen's reaction in verse 59 and 60. And when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, we see Stephen, like we did last week, acting a lot like Jesus. This sounds almost exactly like his Savior. When he was hanging on the cross and instead of crying out for justice and asking the Lord to retaliate on his behalf, Stephen pleaded with the Lord to receive his spirit. He was ready to go home and be with the Lord. He had done what he had been called to do. And while the rocks were bouncing off his beaten body, his head and his face, he asked the Lord not to hold this sin against those who were stoning him. Remember Jesus saying right before he died, he asked his father to forgive those who were crucifying him because they didn't understand what they were doing and that this had to be to fulfill scripture. Stephen is doing a similar thing here. And then he fell asleep, which is a nice way to say that he died peaceably. Imagine dying peaceably while people are throwing rocks at you. What a sign of God's great mercy. And Saul approved of their killing. 
And again, we'll talk more about that later. But as to close this out, and I know you've been waiting for this, <clears throat> the Lord did not let Stephen's martyrdom go to waste, just as he had never let anything go to waste. Even the hard times in the 400 years of slavery, he grew the nation of Israel to a mighty nation. He used Stephen's martyrdom for his purposes. Let's read that. On that, great, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, and going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Remember, we talked about how God cannot be contained, that he is too big to be contained, and so is his church. Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 8, right before he ascended, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And up until this point in time, the church, as it had been developing and growing, was stuck in Jerusalem. They were not leaving Jerusalem because God wasn't ready for them to leave Jerusalem. But now, through Stephen's martyrdom and the persecution of the church that followed, the church moved out into Judea and Samaria to get them moving. And the church exploded throughout the world from this time forward. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Acts. It wasn't God who caused the martyrdom for this to happen, but God used the martyrdom for this to happen. God knew it was going to happen, and he moved his church. We see that Paul or Saul went on a rampage persecuting the church. Now, in his defense, the whole time he thinks he is protecting God. He thinks he's doing the right thing. Instead, he ends up imprisoning the Lord's children, of which he'll become one very soon. But through Stephen's martyrdom, God used it to move the church. God moves the church through times of persecution. Now, Wednesday night here is community group. And uh, we are going to be looking at a show, a movie, if you will, of the called The Insanity of God, which there's also a book called The Insanity of God. And if, if you chose between the two, you should read the book. But the movie's good too. So we're going to show it here. And it talks about all kinds of stories in the modern church of persecution and martyrdom. It's, it's fine for children to listen to, by the way. In fact, it's good. It's not like in great, terrible detail. So it's the whole family can watch this, but it's for us to see how God works. Right now in our country, we know that there's like a disdain for biblical Christianity. It's not popular. I mean, we look around churches today and really since before COVID, but COVID really did a number on the church and people haven't returned. And you hear about Christianity not wanting to be spoken about. People are trying to get it to not be spoken about in the public square. But God will have none of that. But the persecution that we would call that is nothing in comparison to the persecution that people face every day 
in different parts of the world, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia. We have missionaries that, are, that we support in South Asia, Ian and Haley. And where they're at, they can't even identify themselves. We got a, a note from them overnight about the things that they're doing, and they can't identify who it is that they're serving. They use initials like J and G, and they go to the C because they can't talk about what it is that they're doing because if they did, they could get kicked out of the country. If they were nationals, they could be thrown in jail. There are people around this country who every day wish that they could come into a church and decide whether or not it's too cold to come in or to stay home. Or they go to church and choose to go to church and gather together in secret by candlelight, praying that no one finds them so that they aren't killed. And yet, they're witnessing around their country and their neighborhood and their people in ways that is bringing people into the church by great numbers. We hear this, this talk, and I've talked about this before, where uh, articles will come out about the dying church in America. And it makes us sad when we read those. I've quit reading them, to be honest with you, because it's garbage. God's church will never go down. It is his bride. It is his church. It is his creation, and it cannot be contained. We must have the faith to trust him. We must have a God big enough to know that whatever it is that he calls us to do, that we trust him by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us just like he lived in Stephen. So what do we take from this? What do we take from this? We take that we know or should know or must know that our God is huge and uncontainable. He is magnificent, he is holy, and he is righteous. And he loves us. He loves us so much. And he has given us a message to share. And we must do it without fear. That he is with us. And he will protect us. And if you're here this morning and you do not know this God, if your God is too small, if he is not your Lord and Savior. Maybe you have just said the sinner's prayer in your life, but you have never seen your life change. Then he is calling us to give our life to him. I want our church to be a church that has a very big God who prays very big prayers and expects our God to answer them. The God whose heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you, God, for the power of your word, the power of the word through Stephen, Lord. I pray, God, that we would never allow you to be small in our life. Lord, that you would be a big, ferocious, loving, kind, righteous God who gives us the power to speak on your behalf by the Holy Spirit, Lord, who gives us your word in the Bible, Lord, to study and to learn about you 
And yes, it's a big book and there is a lot to learn. But we can never learn everything that there is about you in our lifetime, nor can we learn all there is about you in eternity. But Lord, we look forward to every day learning something new about you and living in greater faith because of what we have learned. To trust you to keep your promises, to not miss the life change that we need in order to be a true disciple of yours, to follow Stephen's example. Lord, if there is someone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that today would be the day that they would, they would give their life to you. They would surrender themselves into your hands, Lord. I praise you in 